Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends. So thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach and group facilitator, Trip Lanier. Are you more comfortable talking openly about sex or money? Does the topic of money conjure up feelings of struggle and difficulty? And why does your romantic partner seem to play the money game exactly the opposite of how you would play it? This week, author and financial planner Brent Kessel joins us on The New Man. Listen in as we discuss how a four-year-old is running your financial life. Welcome to The New Man. Today I've got Brent Kessel. He's a self-described financial planner by day and yogi by dawn, the CEO of Abacus Portfolios, and he's the author of It's Not About the Money. Brent, welcome to The New Man. Thanks, Trip. Good to be with you. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, do you run into many yoga practicing, meditating financial planners out there in the world? Um, you know, more and more. I've been doing this 15 years or so, and so I've seen a little bit of a trend. And also writing a book that HarperCollins published got, got some pretty wide distribution. So more and more of them came out of the woodwork. But I'd say we're definitely still a minority. Uh-huh. And how did you get involved in this? Because I know that you have this strong spiritual practice, and yet you are a financial planner. You, you work with people's money on a daily basis. And I'm just curious what that mix of finances and spirituality and your own practice, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, it started in 1995. I went to India, and at the time I was a commercial mortgage broker, so I originated loans on script centers and apartment buildings and things like that. And I was sitting on the steps of the Central Telegraph office in Mysore, which is a, a city in South India, and thinking about my life and journaling a little bit. And I realized that if I didn't change my career, my legacy would be a bunch of properties that I'd helped finance. And that it's nothing wrong with that, but for me personally, I wanted to be in relationships in my business life that had more intimacy, I guess would be a way to say it, where I was having a dialogue that was closer to the heart of what money means to people and how it frees them and how it constrains them. So I came back from India and started poking around and seeing, should I become a therapist who specializes in money or should I be a financial guy who has some psychological awareness? And I decided to become a certified financial planner and, and then 
opened Abacus in 1996, which is a, a registered investment advisory firm and a financial planning firm with uh, three offices around the country. Excellent. When I was reading It's Not About the Money, I really got how much of it is this interior world, this core story that we carry around. And I'm curious, from your perspective, just like on the broad sense, why are finances, why is money such a loaded topic for so many people? Because it's so closely tied to our survival. Um, At some point, we realize that without money, we're not going to be able to feed ourselves. We're not going to afford shelter. And it might not have to be our money. We might live with our parents or we might, you know, be with a spouse or a partner who makes more than us or has more than us. But one way or another, we have to, we have to live off of resources that cost money. And so even if it's someone else's money, there's going to be relationship implications with that. So it brings up a lot of kind of fear usually when it first happens, if, depending on how gradually we've been introduced to the idea. And... That is why so often people's hearts literally stop when they are looking at their investment accounts having declined in value a great deal or when they're filing bankruptcy or when they're losing a job or their company is going under. Even though in this day and age, very, very few people in the United States go hungry or are homeless, and my guess is most of your listeners aren't facing that imminently, um, that's kind of the level of the the body's reaction, the, the level of the physiological fear reaction when something goes bad financially is that that's about to happen to me. So if I'm thinking about money and I'm and my money is <laughs> becoming less and less, there's less of it coming in, My, I'm, I'm like going into survival mode. I'm going into like real scarcity. I, I may not be able to eat. And even though that may not make sense cognitively, like on the surface, like I'm not going to go hungry. Um, that's what we're feeling. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And, you know, I think what I say to people is to, is to really go into that worst-case scenario. I mean, one of the things we do on the workshops that I teach is guide people through a worst-case scenario kind of guided meditation. And you might say, well, why would you want to do that? That's just if you believe the laws of attraction, then you're just going to attract your worst-case scenario. And my, my counter-argument to that is that we're already thinking of that even if we're not consciously thinking of it, it's in there and we might be resisting it because it's kind of unconscious and scary. But the fears that we face have so much less power than the fears that we don't. And so I really strongly encourage people to really dive in to that fear and ask it to, to be specific about what do you really think is going to happen? And do you really think I'm going to be just comatose and not able to respond if this and this and this happens? Or what will I literally do to be able to cope and be resourceful? And by getting clear about that, yes, I would get out of bed in the morning, I'd go and look for a job here, or I'd live in this kind of an apartment, or I'd share a room in this person's house. Those kinds of specifics are the best antidote for that kind of fear. I really appreciate what you said about like the law of attraction and, and the difference between that and like facing our fears. When I did the exercise, when I was going through the book, uh, once I got it in front of me, once I looked at it, I, you know, I wrote it down, I kind of journaled it, and I was like, that's it? Like that, and, and it seemed kind of silly, but nevertheless, that story and that fear had been driving so much in me and influencing almost all of my decisions. Um, and so it was such a benefit when I got it out in front of me and just was like, oh my gosh, it, it just, it was a lot smaller than um, once I had a chance to see it in front of me. That's great. So, well, what do you mean then? Because it, it, money is important and, but the book is, it's not about the money. So can you tell us a little bit more? What's it about then? 
Well, it, you know, it's a tongue-in-cheek title. It, it's not about the money, and it is about the money. The, the reason that that has that title is that regardless of whether my clients have had tens of millions of dollars, as many of them do, or just a few hundred thousand, or are even in debt, as some of the people I've worked with in workshop situations are, their their happiness, their fulfillment, or their fear seems completely unrelated to how much or how little they have. So that part of it, the, the how we feel about money or how we feel as a result of money has nothing whatsoever to do with the how much of money. And, you know, it's, it's also my way of, of getting people to ask that very question and say, well, then what is it about? And the answer is it's about you internally. It's about your own relationship to greed, your own relationship to fear, um, and the conditioning that you've gotten, like the experiences that you've gone through in your childhood and adolescence and adulthood up until now have shaped how you react when different financial situations happen. And for the most part, your, our reactions around money aren't, aren't the best ones, and they aren't usually the ones we would choose. If we really had a free choice in the matter, we might choose to save more or to be a little more frugal or to be more generous with our money or to invest a little more prudently and not be as reactive to the markets. There's a whole host of things we might choose, but our conditioning kind of almost runs the show, which is why I jokingly say in the book that a four-year-old runs your financial life. There's also just, um, there's a lot of myths involved that if I have more money, if there, you know, if I were able to reach that milestone ahead, that I will, I will find that feeling that I'm looking for, which is what you're calling happiness. Yeah. Happiness, fulfillment, well-being, really a, a sense of basic well-being. That's the biggest thing that is really all of our birthright and we deprive ourselves of it. Um, we believe the advertising messages and, and we believe the, just sort of our comparative mind that looks at someone else who's got more money than us or a better job or a nicer house. And we, we believe the thought that says he's happier than me. And I, if only I made that much more or had that house, I'd be happy too. And that's the other place where it's not about the money because we, as my wealth has grown and my business has grown, it hasn't made any difference. Those promises have been empty. And those clients of mine who have sold companies for many, many millions of dollars have all said to me it made absolutely no difference to the inner experience. Um, doesn't mean, I mean, they were able to take nicer vacations and drive nicer cars and buy the second home they always dreamed of, but so much more didn't change than did change. And I think if we recognize that ahead of time, we prioritize well-being from right now, from this moment, and we don't defer it for a promise of a better tomorrow. Why is there such a disconnect between that reality that you just described, like talking to your clients, and then these stories that in the four-year-old that's running the show? Why is there such a disconnect? Well, that's a million-dollar question. <laughs> um, I think I think there's a disconnect. I mean, so I've, I've meditated quite a bit, especially in the last five years. I've done a lot of retreats and a lot of sitting just on my own. And what I find when I ask that question, looking at my own mind, is that the mind's job is to make a problem out of life. It's to say, you know, there's, there's an obstacle here that I've got to resolve in order to feel okay, in order to feel basic well-being. And when you really question that voice, is that true or not true, and what has actually created my well-being, I find that 
that those things, those, all those problems that my mind thinks exist and the problems it solved yesterday that it told me I'd be happy once it resolved them, they didn't have any impact on my happiness. All they did was sow the seeds for me to set more goals for today and try and achieve more goals, which is why the treadmill keeps going faster and faster for most of us. We're just kind of running faster, hoping that you know, one day we'll have this magical feeling of having achieved all the goals and that's when we'll get to feel basic well-being. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're quiet enough with yourself and if you're sincere enough in wanting to ask the question you just asked, the answer reveals itself to you. And, and that's how we voluntarily, slowly start stepping off of that treadmill you know, a little bit at a time and prioritizing well-being independent of how much money we have or, or all the other goals. Yeah, and it seems like this is where money and striving for wealth can get a bad rap, or maybe it is the striving that gets the bad rap, but money in itself and and building wealth does is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you do it for a living. You help other people build wealth for a living. So, where's that talk about the middle path here? That's a great question. Yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. I actually asked the Dalai Lama that, and I asked Harold Kushner that, a number of the, the teachers that I interviewed in my research for the book. And without exception, none of these famous authors and teachers said that money's evil or money's a problem. Where it, where it falls apart is in our grasping. Um, it's, it's when we cling to anything. So it could be money, it could be sex, it could be travel, just anything that our wanting mind grasps onto and says, if I have that, then I'll be happy. That's the definition of unhappiness. That's the Buddha's first noble truth, that suffering is, is caused by desire, essentially. In the book you talk about, we get what we think we deserve. What, what's that all about? It, it really trip comes from my observation of clients and family members of clients. So, for example, I had a, a wealthy client family couple um, who... Uh, Passed on. They they left an inheritance. Um, you know, made a big gift essentially to their to their kids. And the one daughter had been um, a spendthrift. She just uh, never been able to keep money in her hands. And whenever she got some extra money from a job, it would always kind of pass right through her hands. So her parents decided to kind of set up this <clears throat> this nest egg for her and give her a, give her a larger gift than than usual so that she hopefully wouldn't burn through it. And sure enough, about two and a half years later, she had burned through all of it. So examples like that made me look at, well, why? what's happening here? If, it's, if this person burns through their large gift and another person who doesn't get a large gift is able to just methodically save and have a substantial nest egg in those same two and a half years, What's the difference? I mean, they both live on the west side of L.A. They both have about the same income, same education, and there's something else going on. And it's really at the level of the subconscious mind um, and what that mind feels most comfortable with or thinks it deserves, to use that terminology. So it's almost like your nervous system is attuned to a certain level of wealth like or scarcity. So if my nervous system is kind of attuned to having $5,000 in the bank, and once I get to 10 or 15, I actually feel out of my comfort zone, and I start to feel like, yeah, something, you know, something's a little bit off here, and maybe I'm going to blow it, um, maybe I'm going to make some big investment mistake, this is too much responsibility, or it's pushing my identity too far out of my comfort zone, it's uncanny, we will all find a way 
to spend or give or make a bad investment such that we get back into our comfort zone in terms of our net worth or our debt or our, you know, our overall financial picture. <laughs> so that's how we get what we think we deserve. And it, you see it happen in the lottery statistics where most lottery winners file bankruptcy a few years after their winnings. Most NFL players don't have anything to show for it about three years after their games, their seasons are over. Um, and, you know, so it just, it seems like this unconscious mind really has an expectation and our lives conform to that. It's amazing that we can actually be uncomfortable with too much money. It seems like the story out there is like, I'm uncomfortable with not enough money, but even on the flip side, we'll find ways to get rid of money and to find that place where we're comfortable. Comfortable. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you can say, well, that was a bad investment, or I, I gave the loan to my cousin and they left the state and never paid me back. Um, it, there's always some story around it, but I, I've just seen it too many times that people seem to not really make big paradigm shifts in their relationship to money unless they're very intentional about it, mm. unless they want it badly enough that they're willing to look at the blueprint of what, what I call their core story with money and, and work to cultivate the, the financial archetypes that have been most dormant in them, um, the parts of themselves that need the most development. Those people can make the paradigm shifts. Most of us, when we leave it in the unconscious, will keep having the financial life we've had. So say more about the, those types. It's really the heart of the book. It's not all of the book, but there's these eight financial archetypes that are defined in the book. Um, and there's no better or worse about them. Each one is a gift, uh, has, has kind of a high-functioning version of itself, and each one has a low-functioning version of itself. So I'll, I'll just very quickly kind of run through them. Um, the guardian is alert and prudent with money, um, so very careful, but they can also be very worried and anxious and kind of overly uh, uptight about it. The pleasure seeker uses money to, to experience sensory enjoyment in the here and now, so buying things that feel good to them, that look good to them, that sound good to them, that sort of thing. The innocent uh, kind of believes or hopes that life will work out best if they don't put a significant amount of attention on money. So this is the person who usually avoids it, doesn't open their bills, um, just kind of believes that they'll always land on their feet. And that the innocent can get into a lot of trouble if they're, you know, if they're not watching closely and, and things like adjustable rate mortgages suddenly jump up dramatically. Uh, the fourth one is the idealist who prioritizes creativity so it could be a musician or an artist uh, or a spiritual path um, or social activism over money. So the idealist really wants to use money to express their ideals in the world, but the, the pitfall of the idealist is when they're cynical and skeptical and almost they're not uh, catalyzed into action by their ideals. They're just uh, sort of frozen in, in cynicism by them. Got it. Uh, the caretaker uses money to express compassion and, and empathy, uh, so they're very generous with money, but the pitfall is when they're so generous that they're not taking good enough care of themselves, that they're actually enabling other people, maybe they're adult kids living at home, maybe making gifts or loans to friends all the time, maybe every romantic relationship, they've always been the provider. Um, so again, nothing wrong with that as long as it's all openly communicated and not happening in a self-destructive way. 
Uh, the star is another archetype. The star essentially uses money to seek recognition or be feel hip or classy. So sometimes it's a good thing, and they're actually doing very admirable things with their money, and sometimes it's really empty and just kind of buying bling or a fancier car so that hopefully people will think more highly of them. And that one almost never works out, that whatever hollowness they were trying to get away from comes back soon enough. And the eighth one is called the Empire Builder, who thrives on the innovation and power required to create something of enduring value. So usually it's a business, um, but sometimes it can be a charitable foundation or something like that. And yes, the, the gift of the Empire Builder is that they often create a great company or something that really does add a lot of value to other people's lives. And the pitfall is when they're greedy and domineering and just kind of steamroll through other people's needs in order to achieve their vision. And so we're not just one of these types, and these can apply to, to everyone, but we might be uh, two or three. Is that is that right? Yeah, pretty much everyone's a combination. There's usually one or two that are dominant, and there's usually two or three that are totally dormant. That you just you can't even relate to them. <clears throat> so one of the exercises in the book is to try and identify which ones are totally dormant in you and then start to figure out how to cultivate the positive attributes of those. And why would that be helpful? I mean, is, is any one better than the other? No, it's not that one is better than the other. It's that balance is better than being imbalanced in just one or two. So, for example, I was a, an excessive saver when I was when I was younger. Did I? You know what? I don't think I said saver. I only came up with seven. So <laughs> I missed uh, the one that's closest to home. Saver <laughs> is uh, the archetype that accumulates financial assets for security or abundance. So I was a saver um, throughout most of my life, and, and still am. It's still my dominant one. But I was such a saver that, like, I every girl I dated, we'd go Dutch on most of the dates, and I was, you know, I'd never really give much to charity, and I was just a tightwad, a complete tightwad when I was like 22, 23. Mm. Amazing, looking back, that I even got dates. But um, <laughs> the, you know, then I met my my now wife, and um, and she was more of a pleasure seeker and more of a caretaker. And over time, I started to adopt more of the positive attributes of those things. So to the saver, spending money on something you enjoy is just a complete waste. Like, why would I go buy some nice clothes or spend money on anything but a seven-year-old car that's nice and cheap to drive? And the answer to the pleasure seeker is because it's fun and because it looks good and it feels good and you can actually enjoy it more. Um, you know, why would I give money away to someone just because they need it? Um, and to the caretaker, it's because... It actually touches something in your own heart and you feel kind of um, like there's more purpose for your money than if you're just sticking it in your own investment account or your bank account. So I started slowly adopting these behaviors, really cultivating those two archetypes that had been completely dormant in me until that point. And it's, it's just, it's made the savings more enjoyable. It's, it's made my whole relationship to money much more enjoyable. And you kind of, it's like becoming a well-rounded athlete where you're able to call on different skills and different muscle groups when you need them um, rather than just being ruled by kind of one overly strong part of your body. And I can even imagine for married couples out there that in their world, the way that they approach money, you know, for, as an individual is the only way to approach money. And my wife is crazy. She's trying to undermine me or something like that. This yep. is where we actually get to see, oh, wow, in her world... This is what money means. This is what she's actually going for when she's trying to spend money on this or that. It seems like we can develop more of an understanding for each other. 
Absolutely. Well, you hit the nail on the head because what most of us actually do is we attract the archetypes that we most need to develop in ourselves. Um, and then we fight with them, you know, for, for the rest of eternity. But there's actually a more intelligent part of us that has identified that this was the missing piece, that I actually needed more of that archetype in my life. And so those, those two sort of polar opposites come together. And as you just said, the, the key is to look for the positive intention behind how that other archetype behaves. So it's not not the behavior, <laughs> like you might be married to a pleasure seeker who's really irresponsible and constantly putting money on credit cards and in debt and still going you know, out for the retail therapy when they can't really afford it. And I'm not saying you want to validate that behavior, but if you're, if you're completely the opposite end of the spectrum, what you do need to look at is what's the positive attribute of that archetype? In that case, sensory enjoyment in you know in the here and now, and am I completely off the reservation with not prioritizing that in any way? And if that's true, then you know then you want to. I mean, this, this is longer than we have time for in this interview, but there's there's great practices and techniques and ways to use your relationship to help create more balance in both of you. Beautiful. Beautiful. So let's wrap this up. What's one thing a guy can do today? I'm definitely going to recommend that you guys go out and get this book, but what's the one thing that he can do right now that's going to help him start to get some traction in this area of his life? One of the key things I think all of us can do is admit one part of our relationship to money that we've been unwilling to admit in the past. So we all have kind of a money mask, something we sort of hide from the world or we pretend to the world. We might pretend to be richer than we really know ourselves to be. We might pretend to have a higher income than we really do, maybe by the way we dress, maybe by the car we drive, maybe just the way we talk about our financial situation. And my invitation is to kind of to start to bring your relationship to money a little more out into the open. Find one person in the next week that you can talk to and admit something about your relationship to money that you've not really admitted publicly before. It can be anything. But, and then pay attention to what happens. I mean, you'll be nervous going into the conversation if you've picked something that's really got some, some teeth in it. Um, but pay attention to how you feel after you've shared it. And what most people find that have done this exercise is that you feel a huge relief, like the burden lifts and no big deal. And often that person will then share something back to you that you, you know that you had no idea about that, that they were kind of struggling with or a self-image issue they had around money. And it, this stuff is so universal, and yet in our culture, it's the last taboo. No one talks about money. We'll, we'll talk about sex much more readily than about money. Mm. And therefore, it's got a ton of power, and the, the secrecy actually keeps us trapped in, in the relationship to money we have today. And if you're happy with that relationship, no problem, but... If there are things you want to change, uh, the key is talking about the parts that you kept hidden. Beautiful. That feels edgy to me. <laughs> like I'm thinking about, oh my God, if I would do that. Okay. Uh, so where do we find out more about you? Where do we get your book? Tell us about that. Sure. Well, my website is notaboutthemoney.com. Um, that's the best place to kind of get a sense of where I'm speaking and to be able to buy the book. Um, it links through to a bunch of different retailers there. Um, we've also got this cool new product out. It's part of the Alive World website, Alive, A-L-I-V-E, World, uh, W-R-L-D. 
And uh, what I did for them is like a web-based interactive live guide. <clears throat> so there's a lot of content from the book on there. And then there's all these interactive exercises, and you can track your progress. They've got like a calendar. It'll send you emails to remind you to do a particular practice. I mean, you, you get to set all this stuff up, uh, you know, based on whatever preferences you have. But it's a great way to, to kind of engage in the work. And then there's forums, discussion forums, where you can ask questions of other people who are working through the same material. And I think it's like 19.95. It's pretty inexpensive. So that's that's a great place to go. Um, the paperback I think is selling for 11 or 12 bucks on Amazon. So the book itself is a great resource. Um, and then I, I run a financial planning and investment management firm, which can be found at abacuswealth.com. A B A C U S W E A L T H. And we manage people's IRAs and their investment accounts anywhere from $50,000 up to $50 million. Um, so your, your listeners could check that out if they might have a need for financial planning or investment management services. Beautiful. Brent, thank you so much. Again, this work has impacted me, I, myself and others. I, I just know that some people get stuck and no matter what they do, if they're trying to build a business or they're trying to you know, get to that next level wherever they are and they just can't seem to find out what that missing piece is and it's on the inside. It's the, it's the thinking, it's the core story that we're carrying around and this book is, is a great tool for going in there and kind of weeding it out and so you can actually transform. I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show and sharing that. Thanks, Trip. Well, I, I love being on shows where the, the interviewer has done the work himself. I mean, that's, that's, that makes writing the book and doing all this work worthwhile. So thank you for taking it that seriously. Check out the New Man podcast page on Facebook and tell us how this episode made a difference for you. Thanks for listening.